Welcome to episode 226 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we have our regular contributor, our resident philosopher, Almighty Todd from Stockbridge, Vermont, talking with us about Quebec, about glaciers and fjords, about Poutine, Vladimir Poutine, if you will, about global warming, Asian thought juxtaposed with the D.C. politic, as well as harmony of life, and enjoying our brief time here. We also have an EWSA titled FTE Surreptitiously, a poem titled Viva, and an excerpt from the Dhammapada, chapters 1 and 2, on twins and awareness. All of this, as is usually the case, is ensconced within several great tunes. Nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 226 of Troubadours and Tours. Wanna be better than oxygen So you can breathe when you're drowning And weak in the knees I wanna speak louder than Ritalin For all the children who think That they've got a disease I wanna be cooler than TV For all the kids that are wondering What they're going to be We can be Stronger than bombs if you're singing along And you know that you really believe We can be richer than industry As long as we know that there's things that we don't really need We can speak louder than ignorance Cause we speak in silence every time our eyes meet On and on and on it goes it just keeps spinning Until I'm dizzy Time to breathe So close my eyes And start again I want to see through All the lies of society To the reality Happiness is at stake I want to hold up My head with dignity Proud of a life where to give means more than to take I want to live beyond the modern mentality Where paper is all that you're really taught to create Do you remember the forgotten America? Justice, equality, freedom to every race Just need to get past all the lies and hypocrisy Makeup and hair to the truth behind every face Then look around to all the people you see How many of them are happy and free I know it sounds like a dream But it's the only thing that can get me to sleep at night I know it's hard to believe But it's easy to see That something here isn't right I know 
The future looks dark, but it's there that the kids of today must carry the light. On and on and on it goes. The world it just keeps spinning until I'm dizzy. Time to breathe. So close my eyes and start again anew. F T E surreptitiously. So, my fellow working class, middle class, lower to upper, can we now accept that it is clear this Trumpian attempt at disoriented conquest is not in line with our best interests? Are we courageous and patriotic enough to admit when we are wrong and true enough to support what we talk i.e. walk the mother blipping walk. You are not racist, are you? You are not a plebe being manipulated by some half-witted club of white men who behind the facade think they are better than you as they use you to serve their needs, wants, and selfish machinations, are you? Don't be afraid of the higher powers, do not be misdirected. Do not prostrate or prostitute yourself, your mind, your rights, your soul, the dreams and struggles of your ancestors, so that you end up a pig-headed mark of sourpuss rubes with empty hearts. Have some integrity, respect for yourself and the best ideals of our country. F-T-E surreptitiously.
Is, hello? Hello, is this Almighty Todd? Hello, Conundrum. Hey, how's it going? Oh, all right, how are you? Good. Nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours once again. A regular contributor, uh, our resident philosopher, farmer. Uh, oh, God, so many things. Just uh, a very, like I've said in the past, a Bad Renaissance man. man. Batman. <laughs> Madman. Oh, Madman. Batman. Madman. And uh, you just were on a journey. You're up in Quebec and through New England. Little Chilean grapes, Chilean grapes involved. We're going to talk about those things. We're going to talk about uh, Eastern philosophy and uh, D.C. politics and wherever, wherever else we go. Who knows? It's nice to have you back. Oh, it's good to be talking to you again. So um, you were in Quebec with your probation officer, right? Yes, they let me out. They let you out. And what, tell, us a, <laughs> tell us a bit as to you know, why and, and what you saw, why, why you went up there and what you saw. Well, um, growing up in upstate New York and having family up on Lake Champlain, that we were so close to the Canadian border that um, and knew people from Quebec. I, you know, I took French in high school because I thought I would make be useful at some point, and then never really was. But it has become so in time. As I visited Quebec periodically, mostly it was always trips to Montreal because it was so close to home. But uh, last year, for the first time, we went to Quebec City in the winter for the Winter Carnival because that's a famous uh, couple-week event that they have around Mardi Gras time, and. Uh, that was pretty fascinating, seeing the old city and um, pretty vibrant place. Uh, even in the winter, people are riding their bikes around, even though it's snowing. It's pretty crazy in that respect. They're intrepid. And uh, we decided to go up uh, this time of year and also go a little bit farther than Quebec City, out to the Saguenay Fjord, which is this amazing natural wonder. Um, it's a rift valley left from the original continent building that dumps out into the St. Lawrence Seaway, which makes it actually very unique among fjords because it doesn't dump directly into the ocean. And uh, it goes, uh, you know, it's like an hour and a half drive up to the end of the fjord where there's a big bay and where the Saguenay River pours into it. And that's just one of many water sources. It's a you know, massive watershed that pours into this fjord. So consequently, it uh, it has like the top 10 meters of water are fresh water, and then the next 20 meters are brackish, and then the, everything beyond that, which could be anywhere from 50 to another 200 meters deep, uh, is seawater, salt water, and highly oxygenated seawater at that because it's a, got all this fresh dumping into it. So it makes for a very complex marine environment, to the point where they have whales in the fjord. Um, and the belugas come in and uh, ha have their young in there, and they get uh, minky whales and uh, humpback whales. They even get blue whales in this little fjord, you know, the biggest animals on Earth. And uh, it reminded me a lot of Lake Champlain topographically because the rock is the same kind of rock as the Adirondacks. It's the oldest surface rock on the planet, and it's been deformed by time and the glaciers and just, just beautifully, um, you know, landscaped by the natural creation up there. I highly recommend uh, just looking up pictures of it. And if you're interested in, you know, going to a place that's out of the country and speaks a different language, 
just to kind of reset your uh, your visor a little bit in terms of how other people live. Uh, it's pretty cool, uh, and you know people are extremely welcoming, and you know, Canadians are nice anyways. And the Quebecois, if you you know even try a little bit this <laughs> with your French, um, I felt like we're really uh, helpful and very uh, gracious and hospitable. So um, there's that part of it. And if you like poutine, you've got to go, you know, there's, you try out poutine in every little town or restaurant. You're talking about Vladimir, Vladimir Poutine? Yeah, Vladimir Poutine. Exactly. No, do you know poutine? No. Uh, you... I don't know poutine. No. I've never seen him. I've never talked to poutine. <laughs> I remember, I, I, you know, I've never spoken to poutine. No. He's a small man. Yeah. Well, you can get a small or a large. Okay. And then there's also the familial size, too. But, uh, yeah, oh. poutine is basically, and there may be some version of this in your neighborhood, because I grew up with a version that I didn't realize that's what it was. But it was basically fries and gravy. Oh, um, yeah. Fries and gravy have you are had big. fries and gravy? Oh, they're big yeah. here in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Well, okay, well, this is this poutine is like it's fries and gravy. It may be the original fries and gravy. Don't tell anybody I said that. But what they do is they add, they put cheese curd, little, you know, balls of cheese curd, on it, so they get kind of melty and they're still kind of uh, you know squeaky and fresh. Uh, it's delicious, and sometimes they'll put smoked meat on it. Oh man! You want? Yeah. Isn't it funny how uh, you know food dishes often are very erotic sounding? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's a how can you say uh, it's a, uh, gustatory experience is uh, is a hedonistic experience, but not in like the overdone way. It's just it's it's hedonic in that we how we experience it. You know. On a visceral level. Yeah, it's definitely a very, a very visceral pl- sort of pleasure, no doubt. And uh, how do you spell poutine? P o u t i n e. P o u t i n e. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, you went up there with your beautiful wife, right? Yep. I. She'd been pining for that. We had such a good time in Alaska, but we're not going to go that far. And she wants to go to Norway someday because she wants to see the fjords there. And so I've been telling her for a couple of years, that, hey, there's this fjord in Quebec. And she's like, what, are you kidding? There's no fjord in Quebec. So I finally made, you know, showed her the thing. And she's like, wow, there's God, a fjord in Quebec. God and damn it, just... <laughs> honey, there's a fjord in Quebec, and I'm going to show you. She totally got you. She, there isn't. <laughs> she totally yeah. just manipulated your male mind to I get know. it up there. Yeah, good job. Now, uh, for, for those of us who aren't geologists, who aren't... Uh, uh, topography experts who aren't ecologists, any of those things. Explain what a fjord is. Basically, it's a big, long, deep, uh, you know, narrow passage of water, relatively narrow passage of water that's uh, seawater, and it usually has high cliff walls on either side because I believe it's because they're, they're – I don't know. I know that this one is a rift valley, but that that may be what makes fjords fjords. They can op- they'll often have been acted upon by the glaciers, which will um, maybe exacerbate their depth and the sheerness of cliffs, but round them at the tops, and you'll get all these cra- these little bays and coves in them as the glacier worked. You know, softer material as they as, as they advance and retreat. So I mean, this fjord. Like I said, it's 250 meters deep in some places. So that's like, you know, that's deep. So it's, I, I don't know the conversion exactly, but you're talking, you know, over 750 feet. 
wow. deep. Yeah. And then the cliffs on the sides of it can go up to 1,200 feet at some point. But that distance there, you'd have to go four more times as high to be where the top of the glacier was. Wow. wow. So it's a and remnant. So, it's a remnant. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, the glacier has left its footprint on something that's a, a much older thing. The Rift Valley itself, I think, is like 450 million years old. Yeah. There was also a place up there in the St. Lawrence Seaway. If you look at a map of the St. Lawrence, go from Montreal to Quebec City, and then you'll see the St. Lawrence gets a lot wider all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. An asteroid hit there. Wow. Wow. And flattened, you know, if there was a crater that rebounded, so there's a, a more, you'll see there's a, a ring cut out of the mountains, and there's a, like a more of a dome in the middle of it. Before the river was there, or while the river was there, the asteroid uh, hit? That, I'm just, that's a good question. No, it would have been... They said that one was 450 million years ago. So, yeah, the St. Lawrence River is younger than that. I don't know how much of it was definitely... Because it's, it's at the kind of like the, the edge of the North American plate, and the way the plate stretches and ripped a little bit created a place for that, and then the glaciers, of course, did more. I need to go back and learn more about the overall geology of the... Um, or the specific geology of the St. Lawrence, because I know kind of the context for it, but I'll tell you that you could see the marks of the glacier everywhere. There were places up on top of mountains where there were just these long, straight lines across the exposed bedrock, like like somebody dragged a comb through it. See, this is what we have to look for as a result of global warming. We're going to be able to see these things in our, you know, in our lifetime. Oh, yeah, there will, be, there will be places, or you can go now to places like Alaska, to the glaciers that you can get to the edge of and you can see as they've receded the lines that they left in one case we saw one where you could see that there was still a rock trapped in the ice and you can see how that rock being dragged was causing a scrape line you know really slowly but albeit you know you could see a few feet of a scrape that's when you were up in alaska yeah 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 so, this makes me sound like i'm some kind of world traveler but by no means that, you know, that, that was a Crazy, but we're going to go back to Quebec again because it's nearby. It's drivable distance. I mean, yeah, you're in Quebec Vermont, Stockbridge, Vermont. So it's a, what, uh, three, four hours? Quebec City is about four and a half hours from where we live. So it's about the same as driving to New York. Yeah, and then getting to, to uh, like out further, the Saguenay is only a couple more hours. So it's pretty reasonable in that respect. And right now, the the currency exchange rate still makes it also more affordable. It's like a 25% discount on everything you do up there. Oh, nice. nice. Yeah, and, and, the, and the food is reasonably priced, and the wine is reasonably priced, and gas is a little bit more expensive, but not terribly so, and lodging is pretty reasonable. So it's, you know, if you're not feeling, you want to go for a trip and don't want to fly anywhere when you're on the East Coast, it sure is a, an option. Although you could fly into Quebec City and then probably rent and drive from there. It's beautiful, wild country. Now, from there, you went to Connecticut. <laughs> well, I actually came back home first. Oh, you did? Yeah, I did come back home first and had to grab the, the other car. And then today, drove down to Connecticut and back to go pick up the, the grapes. The Chilean. What kind of the grapes? Chilean wine grapes. What? We got some Malbec. We got some Carmenere. We got some Syrah and some... Cabernet Sauvignon. Now, you have a connection to Chile. Your wife is Chilean, right? Uh, no, she's Hawaiian. She's Hawaiian. Her father's <laughs> Chilean. No, he's Nebraskan. 
<laughs> There's a connection. I, I, I know. He works right, in he, Chile. Yeah, he worked in Chile. That's he, what he worked, it is. He, he worked in Chile for a long time at uh, one of the at the, one of the telescopes. He moved down there in the mid seventies and still down there now. Okay, He's retired. And, but uh, and, and we had visited many years ago, and that was at the time when I was really getting into wine, and it really, that opened me wide open. And so then when after I started making wine, and then uh, I was looking around for where can you get stuff. One spring I saw this ad for in two thousand nine for. These guys down in Connecticut that usually bring in the Californian grapes to the East Coast in the fall, and they uh, they were going to start bringing Chilean group grapes north. And I was like, well, hey, I got to try and get in on that. So I did a little experiment, came out pretty good, doubled what I was going to do the next year, got really good. Some friends helped me do some distemming, and I said, hey, can we get some grapes too, and we'll make this wine? And I said, okay, let's so that's where we're at. So we'll have a little neighborhood gathering tomorrow evening and uh stem them. the grapes yeah and I mean, if somebody wants to stomp on them they can this uh, this is uh, so now you get to make wine twice a year basically yeah exactly yeah from the, from or the, or i'm too um, this is where the madman part is because if you're a winemaker you're like what twice a year i mean that's cool but it's also like you get these these kind of uh traffic control problems in the cellar <laughs> <laughs> stuff's going down at the same time other stuff's coming up <laughs> you well, kind of you're a, you're a big wine guy, you know. I mean, you've written a book, uh, wine, Wines of Vermont. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. I actually, yeah. I, I love the book. It's so well written, and the history as well as the different types of of grape. It's a wonderful book, um, and you have uh, sort of a little media operation, a Vermont Wine Media, and you travel around. You talk to some pretty hefty people in the wine world, the New York Times wine critic uh, you've had uh, interactions with. Uh, the, what's the woman's name? Deidre? Is that her name? Yeah, Deidre. My friend Deidre Heakin, yeah. She's written a, a highly acclaimed uh, book on, on winemaking, too, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you're a big wine guy. On top of being a geologist, <laughs> a world traveler, a farmer, a philosopher, and uh, the, the now the, the wine, the Chilean grape. Now, is is your next uh, wine uh, sort of uh, venture, and and, and uh, what what type of wine will come of it? Will it be a, a, a red? Will it be a rosé or a white? Are you going to have a couple different? Well, well, I do do a couple different things with the same grapes. I have a little uh, thing I've worked out that I think is a pretty fun and way to to get a few different things out of the same ingredients, so to speak. So yeah, we do what's called carbonic maceration, um, which is kind of the style of Beaujolais Nouveau, where you you put the grapes in a carbon dioxide environment. And I just do that by starting some juice fermenting in the bottom of a big bin. You put the grapes in on top, and you seal it up tight. And what happens is there's an enzymatic process that starts to transform uh, sugar into alcohol without the yeasts doing it. So it's a non uh, you know a non metabolic process. It's just like a, it's an enzymatic process. And so then it retains a little more fruitiness and um, does some nice textural things for the wine. And then we crush it down after a couple of days and let it continue on its way. That's one way. And then we also do one where it's traditional red wine maceration. You distem it, you crush it, soak it, you know, let it ferment on its skins, let it soak a little longer, and then press it off. So that's your traditional bread maceration. And then 
what we do is we take the skins from those first two and throw them in a tank and have some Merlot juice that's already been cold pressed and cold soaked um, down in Chile and comes in a bucket. Mm-hmm. And it's okay on its own, but it doesn't really make a robust wine. So what we do is like they do in Italy with Rapasso, where they take the uh, multiple ch- the Corvina or Londinello or some other grape and pass it over the Amarone skins. You know Amarone? Mm-hmm. The, the heavy, yeah, so you, they, you pass that grape over the Amarone skin and let it ferment a little longer. It picks up some of that richness of the, Amar- of the skins. So we do the same thing with the skins and the, the Merlot juice. And that becomes the second run wine, mm. which seems like the one everybody likes best um, right off the bat. Do you, do you take it to the grappa stage? Uh, that's not legal in the United States to do at home. FTE. Yeah. 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 An acronym. Yeah. So that's just, you know, one of those things that prohibition never got that far. That we were, well, you were always able to make some wine and beer at home or wine at home during Prohibition, but... Not distilling. Uh, dis- distillation yeah. is still under tight control because it's kind of like printing money in a way. And that's why even if, you know, you, as soon as you make it, you got to pay taxes on it and you got to hold a bond and all that stuff. So your your answer is no, you don't make grappa or you're, no. you're not going to admit to it. Okay. At least I couldn't do it legally. <laughs> well, in Vermont, you guys do what you want. You guys are like... Ex- people, people are known to do things out in the woods. Yes, I'd imagine. Um, you make syrup. Is that what you call it? Yeah. Uh, Almighty Todd, ladies and gentlemen, talking with us about his trip to Quebec, fjords, uh, Vladimir Poutine, or I mean fries and gravy, whatever you choose, uh, some glacier movement, and uh, Chilean yeah. grapes and wine making right now. I want to get to, because uh, you're a person who can go a lot of different places that's one of the reasons I really enjoy talking with you. Uh, let's go to Eastern philosophy juxtaposed with the D.C. political machinations at present. Can you yeah, I kept thinking about how to, how to approach that. And I, I, uh, <laughs> there's a few you know, precursors that I think have to be gone over before it can have a discussion like that, but that might be a discussion in itself. Well, um, go for it. But but coming off of, off of glacial pace, um, definitely what's going on with the investigations in the House and the Senate is really a uh, a joke <laughs> at this point. And the fact that they don't want to they don't want to entertain the idea of an independent uh, investigator because it would make the ongoing investigations look bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways. Uh, I'll back it up and, and try to answer your question, or at least you know, spark some conversation around it. But uh, Eastern philosophy and and the DC political climate. Well, there, there maybe are things that could be studied in Eastern philosophy that could be applied to it. But first, you have to we have to take a step back and recognize that the idea Eastern philosophy is a concept that is a couple hundred years old and it comes out of the West and it's uh, basically positing that uh, everything that is 
what would be considered Asian thought is somehow collected as a philosophy, which really it's not. And there are some people that even argue that um, philosophy is, is strictly a domain of the Western the Western construct, yes. Yeah. Uh, do you agree with in that? that? Well, in, this, in what we consider philosophy to be, uh, in terms of uh, maybe long, drawn-out, uh, logical progressions of of thought structures, and that uh, maybe Asian thought doesn't necessarily or can't really be categorized in the same way, and so that it's better to to instead of saying Eastern philosophy or Oriental philosophy is to say Asian thought because it is a quite wide um, sphere of different kinds of thinking. And so Asian thought itself is broken down from a Western categorical perspective into two areas. One is Eastern Asian thought and Southern Asian thought. The Eastern Asian side is pretty much is like your Chinese thought, Japanese thought, Korean. And then... South Asian is India, Indonesia, Nepal. Uh, and so they're kind of different families that are built, probably you think of it geographically because of where those, how the landform has divided up populations. And, you know, even within Chinese thought, there are many schools of thought, and then there are things that aren't schools of thought, really, because... You know, you could consider Taoism uh, a school. There's a you know a philosophical bent to Taoism. There's also a religious bend to it, and those two aren't always in the same. Um, don't always line up the same way. Or one is more abstract, and the other one has more quote unquote practical applications. Um, if you know, if I asked you about Confucius. What would, would what would be your impression of Confucius? If, you know, I would put that to you. I I really I don't know. Confucius is like the stereotypical sort of reference point when people talk about Eastern thought or Asian thought. I don't, but I I don't know how I would categorize. Okay, so yeah, so that's you know often the case. I think we we know that that's the thing, but it's not. We're not sure what that means. So. So Taoist thought, like we were just talking about, is built quite a bit around the idea of the yin-yang, and that there is a harmony to nature and to to life itself, and that what we want to try and do is figure out how to align ourselves with that that harmony of nature in such a way to to live the highest form of life possible with the least amount of uh, conflict. That's kind of a, that's a con- condensation, and that's where you get your you know your the the Taoist text, which is basically a bunch of poems or like it's like trying to formulate Christianity out of just some some of the Psalms, mm-hmm. uh, and so you know a lot of interpretation goes into uh, what those all mean or how you how you use those in a either an abstract way or in a practical daily way. Then you've got Confucius, who 
really is he was more uh developed a a, a logical ethic it was basically about ethics um and that trying to live the highest life possible meant trying to live in as righteous a way as possible in terms of being a good a good person but also to search out knowledge and to learn as much as possible and by doing those things you are contributing to the betterment of society and the world so in terms of the the current politic the USA would say that that's we're pretty much diametrically opposed. It's a, it's the, a, part of the righteousness is being you know truthful and honest at mm-hmm. all times. So would be diametrically opposed to, uh, or the the yang for the yin in this case of philosophies or, or practice. But that, in from his perspective, it was um, is yang the darkness. Yang. Uh, that, well, yang is usually yeah. Well. This is one of those things where there's different schools interpret that different ways. But yeah, often the, uh, the yang is the darkness. Yin yang. Yin yang. Yin yang, yeah. Um, so, but even Confucius's school, even though it remains famous, was one of a number of other schools of thought and ethic, you know, eth- ethical practice, ethical life uh, style that were um, eventually overcome by a dynasty change and an overarching philosophy of legalism came into play. And actually, it didn't matter what was moral anymore. It was mattered what was in the law. And at that time, like, everybody in China was a lawyer. <laughs> if you weren't a laborer, you were a lawyer. But, um, and it, that eventually fell away, too, because it was a, it, for, it was a, quite a, you know, a couple hundred years, if I remember correctly, of that China was ruled by an explicitly uh, stringent legal society where everything was regulated. So I also think that that's, you know, the complete opposite of where certain people would want to be going at at this point um, in D.C. So I think what you could do is you could look around in different areas of Asian thought and you have to pick one and look at it for a while and use it as a reference point. But even so, I don't know if it's if that isn't it's in itself kind of a Western deconstruction that well I can kind of grok this thing and then use it over here. That's kind of what they were doing. Uh, you know, the Wall Street traders reading the Art of War during the eighties. Yeah, Sun Tzu. Yeah, you know that. Yeah, I can get some ideas out of this and I can use them or com- you know commoditize them or make you know somehow use them for competitive advantage which is which uh, is contrary to the whole essence in some cases yeah yeah because in case of sun tzu it was like you're even when you went into battle you did it you tried to do it in such a way that the least amount of life was lost and the least amount of uh resources were consumed yeah and yeah. that was definitely not necessarily how people applied it to um the machinations of uh the market at that time so yeah i mean it's i think it's a it's always a hard jump to try and you know take a quick stab at somebody at some you know unfamiliar line of thinking and use it as a way to as a as a touch point but that said it can be an interesting 
exercise. Don't, don't try to take it too seriously because there's definitely people that spend years and years studying it. I, 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 and speaking of which, I would say that Xi Jinping studied a lot more history than uh, than our president did. <laughs> Who did you reference? Xi Jinping, the president of China. Yeah, he probably he's probably done oh. a lot more history. Yeah, study yeah. He when, when he was in the company of of uh, our president, I'm sure he he knew he was with a smaller man. <clears throat> but they have to but deal. They have yeah, to, yeah. Well, and and they do have a sense of um, history. So it's not just philosophy. You know, at least with the the Chinese, they have a very very long arc of history and can cut you know, continuity of civilization, so to speak. Upheavals, yes, but it's still, um, it's a perspective that even having studied, I still don't even believe I can wrap my head around in terms of uh, how we're seen from, from, you know, such a long-standing civilization. Right, we're kids, comparatively. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we only have a few seconds really to go. Uh, so how do we how do we wrap it up then? How do we bring Quebec, Chilean grapes, glacier movement, Asian thought, um, and DC all together? Whew, boy. I don't know, that's a good one, except that, you know, it's easy to get lost in the daily grind. You know, the, the glaciers you know, rubbing us out every day, squeezing us for everything we got. Um, but know that things are moving more quickly uh, around us than we can ever believe. And so we really got to do what we can to pop ourselves out of our um, any kind of daily regimented mindset, I think, in order to get a better handle on uh, just what being alive is, you know, and that we're here. Take ourselves out of, uh, you know, chasing the bills and um, getting stuff done or, you know, our anxieties. And that's where, you know, even sitting outside for a minute, uh, catching a couple rays of sunshine and taking some slow, deep breaths and trying to figure out, you know, find yourself inside your body. Thank you, Sensei. Almighty Todd, ladies and gentlemen, on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, regular contributor up in Stockbridge, Vermont. Pleasure talking with you. So good to talk to you, my friend. Take care, and uh, we'll be in touch. Yeah, hopefully we see each other in June. Yes, yes, exactly. I'll get, I'll get on you with that. All right. Ciao, Fertella. All right. Ciao. That's the truth.
he was just a boy when he made that vow I'd bet it all that he knows by now All men, all men, all men are liars Their words ain't worth no more than worn out tires Hey girls, girls, bring rusty pliers to pull this tooth All men are liars and that's the An excerpt from the Dhammapada, Buddhist Teachings. Chapter 1, Twins. Forerun by mind or mental states, ruled by mind, made of mind. If you speak or act with corrupt mind, suffering follows you, as the wheel, the foot of the ox. Forerun by mind or mental states, ruled by mind, made of mind. If you speak or act with clear mind, happiness follows you, like a shadow that does not depart. He insulted me, he struck me, he defeated me, he robbed me. For those who get caught up in this, hatred does not cease. He insulted me, he struck me, he defeated me, he robbed me. For those who do not get caught up in this, hatred ceases completely. For never here do hatreds cease by hatred. By freedom from hatred they cease. This is a perennial truth. Others do not understand that we must control ourselves here. But for those who do understand this, through it their quarrels cease. If you live contemplating the fair, unrestrained in senses, not knowing moderation in food, dull of weak effort, Mara overthrows you as the wind and ill-rooted tree. If you live contemplating the fowl, well-restrained in senses, knowing moderation in food, confident, raising effort, Mara does not overthrow you 
as the wind a rocky mountain. If someone who is not freed from stain puts on the yellow robe, devoid of self-control and truthfulness, he's not worthy of the yellow robe. But if someone has got rid of the stains, well established in the precepts, endowed with self-control and truthfulness, he indeed is worthy of the yellow robe. Those who imagine value where there's none and don't see value where there's value do not understand value. Dwellers in the realm of wrong thought. Those who perceive value when there's value and know value where there's none understand value. Dwellers in the realm of right thought. As rain penetrates an ill-roofed house, passion penetrates an undeveloped mind. As rain does not penetrate a well-roofed house, passion does not penetrate a well-developed mind. He is sorry here, after death he is sorry. In both places the evildoer is sorry. He is sorry, he is tormented, seeing his own action was defiled. He is happy here, after death he is happy. In both places the doer of good is happy. He is happy, he is joyful, seeing his own action was pure. He suffers here, after death he suffers. In both places the evildoer suffers. He suffers thinking, I have done wrong, and going to a bad place he suffers even more. He rejoices here, after death he rejoices. In both places the doer of good rejoices. He rejoices thinking, I have done right, and going to a good place he rejoices even more. Though you recite much scripture, if you are unaware and do not act according, you are like a cowherd counting others' cattle, not a sharer in the wanderer's life. Though you recite little scripture, if you go from dhamma to dhamma, abandoning passion, hatred, and delusion, rightly knowing, with well-freed mind, not clinging either here or in the other world, you are a sharer in the wanderer's life. Chapter 2 Awareness. Awareness is the place of the deathless. Unawareness is the place of death. The aware do not die. The unaware are as though dead already. Knowing this especially about awareness, the wise delight in awareness, taking pleasure in the realm of the noble ones. Those who constantly practice meditation, ever firm in their endeavor, those wise ones touch Nibbana, the unsurpassed peace of yoga. If you're effortful and mindful, pure indeed, acting with consideration, controlled, living by the Dhamma, and aware, your fame will increase. By effort, awareness, restraint, and self-control, the wise one should make an island which the flood will not overwhelm. Foolish, unwise folk indulge in unawareness. The wise one guards awareness as the finest treasure. Do not indulge in unawareness or closeness with sense pleasures. For aware, meditating, you'll gain great happiness. 
When a learned one by awareness wards off unawareness, he ascends the palace of wisdom and sorrowless observes the sorrowful folk, wise watching fools as one on a mountain sees those on the ground, aware among the unaware, fully awake among the sleeping, the wise one goes, leaving them behind, as a swift horse leaves a weak horse behind. By awareness, Magavan became the chief of the gods. Folk praise awareness. Unawareness is always blamed. The monk who delights in awareness, seeing the danger in unawareness, moves like a fire, burning up fetters, small and great. The monk who delights in awareness, seeing the danger in unawareness, not liable to fall back, is close to Nibbana.
Viva! Through the open windows of my automobile, I witness and hear the sweet sounds and smells of nature, seemingly subservient and servile. Though those who know, know, the true power and beauty lies all therein. Trueness of truth before, now, and then, as to, for all existence, the beautiful green, white, yellow, red, orange, violet, and blue are beyond now, me, and so wonderfully you, too. Viva! Episode 226 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, my good, good friend up there in Stockbridge, Vermont, Almighty Todd. Thank you, sir, for sharing your insight and soulfulness and good humor with us. I also like to thank the Buddha for sharing with us 
the many teachings and ways of human existence that you've compiled over the millennia. I also like to thank these musical artists. Willie Mason, Rage Against the Machine, Nick Lowe, CeeLo Green, the Kosoy Sisters, Brentford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. And I'd like to thank my mom, Chiara Luis Pugliese, for being the best mother I could have ever hoped for. Happy Mother's Day. This and most of our archived episodes can be found at podomatic.com. Check out uh, EW Conundrum and uh, you'll find them. Also on iTunes and uh, at the WFTE website as well. Until next week, have a great this week. And thank you to all the listeners in Kenya, Uganda, in Somalia, in France, England, Italia, Argentina, our listeners in Norway and Sweden as well. Scandinavia, we love you. Yes, we do. In China, in the United States of America, from San Francisco to Scranton, PA, to New York City, where everybody's slick. From Minnesota down to Austin, Texas. It's so, so wonderful to know you're out there. Take care.